Welcome to episode 119 of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett. For our podcast topic this week, we're going to explore the future of design and UX for robotics. More so than any other emerging technology, robotics has captured the imagination of American pop culture, especially that of the Hollywood sci-fi blockbuster. We're entertained, enthralled, and maybe only slightly alarmed by the legacy of Blade Runner, The Terminator, The Matrix, and any number of lesser dystopian robotic celluloid futures. It remains to be seen if robot labor generates the kind of negative societal, economic, and political change depicted in the more pessimistic musings of our culture's science fiction. Ensuring that it does not is a design challenge of the highest order. We must seek to guide our technology rather than allow it to guide us. In the near term, robots are ideal for taking care of jobs that are repetitive, physically demanding, and potentially hazardous to humans. There are immediate significant opportunities for using advanced robotics in energy, health, and manufacturing. Designers working in robotics will need to help identify the major challenges in these areas and seek proactive solutions. Not an obvious or easy task. We can see an example of these major challenges in the tragic events of the Fukushima meltdown. On March 11, 2011, a 9.0 magnitude earthquake and subsequent tsunami damaged the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactors in Japan. Over the course of 24 hours, crews tried desperately to fix the reactors. However, as one by one the backup safety measures failed, the fuel rods in the nuclear reactor overheated, releasing dangerous amounts of radiation into the surrounding area. As radiation levels became far too high for humans, emergency teams at the plant were unable to enter key areas to complete the tasks required for recovery. 300,000 people had to be evacuated from their homes, some of whom have yet to return. The current state of the art in robotics is not capable of surviving the hostile, high-radiation environment of a nuclear power plant meltdown and dealing with the complex tasks required to assist a recovery effort. In the aftermath of Fukushima, the Japanese government did not immediately have access to the hardened radiation-resistant robots. A few robots from American companies tested on the modern battlefields of Afghanistan and Iraq, including iRobots, Warrior, and PackBot, were able to survey the plant. The potential for recovery-related tasks that can and should be handled by advanced robotics is far greater than this. However, for many reasons spanning political, cultural, and systemic before the Fukushima event, an investment in robotic research was never seriously considered. The meltdown was an unthinkable catastrophe, and one that Japanese officials thought could never happen, and as such, it was not even acknowledged as a possible scenario for which planning was needed. The Fukushima catastrophe inspired the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, to create the Robotics Challenge, the purpose of which was to accelerate technological development for robotics in the area of disaster recovery. Acknowledging the fragility of our human systems and finding resilient solutions to catastrophes, whether it's the next superstorm, earthquake, or nuclear meltdown, is a problem on which designers, engineers, and technologists should focus. In the DARPA competition mission statement, we can see the framing of the challenge in human terms. And I'll quote here, 
history has repeatedly demonstrated that humans are vulnerable to natural and man-made disasters, and there are often limitations to what we can do to help remedy these situations when they occur. Robots have the potential to be useful assistants in situations in which humans cannot safely operate. But despite the imaginings of science fiction, the actual robots of today are not yet robust enough to function in many disaster zones, nor capable enough to perform the most basic tasks required to help mitigate a crisis situation. The goal of the DRC is to generate groundbreaking research and development in hardware and software that will enable future robots, in tandem with human counterparts, to perform the most hazardous activities in disaster zones, thus reducing casualties and saving lives. The DARPA competition was successful in its mission to encourage innovation and advanced robotics. In the competition finals held in June of this year, teams from around the world competed at a variety of tasks related to disaster recovery, which included driving cars, traversing difficult terrain, climbing ladders, opening doors, moving debris, cutting holes in walls, closing valves, and unreeling hoses. The gaps between the problems we face as a species and the seemingly unlimited potential of technologies ripe for implementation begs for considered but agile design thinking and practice. De designers should be problem identifiers, not just problem solvers searching for a solution to a pre-established set of parameters. We're on the cusp of a new technological age, saddled with the problems of the previous one, demanding that as we step forward we do not make the same mistakes. To do this, we have to identify the right challenges to take on, the significant and valuable ones. Because this is where emerging technologies like robotics can have their greatest impact. If you're interested in further exploration of this topic, you can check out Designing for Emerging Technologies, which O'Reilly Media published uh, in December of last year, a project on which I was honored to serve as the editor. In this book, you'll discover 20 essays from designers, engineers, scientists, and thinkers exploring areas of fast-moving, groundbreaking technology in areas in desperate need of experience design, like robotics. As part of that, I interviewed Bill Hartman and Scott Stropke from the design firm Essential on their chapter about robotics and healthcare. This interview that you'll hear originally appeared on O'Reilly Radar. Hi, I'm John Follett, editor of Designing for Emerging Technologies. With me today are Scott Stropke, founding partner, and Bill Hartman, director of research at Essential Design, two of the book's contributing authors. Their chapter looks at designing human-robot relationships, which we'll explore a little in this interview. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So you, you open your piece... Uh, with this very vivid description of a uh, first-person patient telehealth scenario, which is uh, managed by a remote doctor through a robotic intermediary. Could you give us a quick overview of that scenario and tell us how that exemplifies some of the challenges inherent in designing human-robot relationships? Sure. Um... We chose to uh, write our chapter around a user scenario because we find ourselves designing uh, pieces of these scenarios for different clients in different contexts. Uh, we've uh, spent some time working on 
uh, telepresence robots in the hospital setting and social robots in other settings and and other robots for um, other pieces of the scenarios that we're imagining here in the future. So the scenario setting um, uh, is... uh, a good way to uh, uh, make these issues very personal. Uh, we think that um, uh, the, the, the challenges inherent in these uh, kinds of scenarios are, are fascinating. Um, how you uh, get people to accept a robot in, in a relationship that you normally have with a person uh, in, in, let's say, a, a hospital setting. How you develop uh, acceptance from the team that's not used to working with a robot as part of their functional team, how you develop uh, trust in those relationships, uh, how you engage people both practically and emotionally, uh, how uh, as a scenario progresses, uh, you bring robots into your home to monitor your recovery uh, was one of the issues that um We've begun to address in, in our work, and uh, and and we're we're pursuing uh, other ideas as it relates to uh, using uh, smart monitors in the form of robot and robotic enhanced uh, devices that uh, can help you uh, advance your uh, I guess improvement in behavior change over time. Uh, look at uh, recovery, uh, and then ultimately. Uh, uh, we're thinking about it, though we've not worked in yet, some of the uh, interesting uh, science that's uh, happening with uh, robots that you ingest that can learn about you and monitor you uh, over time. So there's just a, a world of fascinating uh, issues about uh, uh, what you want to know and how you might want to learn that and who gets access to this information and how that interface could be designed. Yeah, what strikes me from that uh, opening scenario, which uh, for our listeners is uh, this person waking up in a hospital after uh, some kind of um, operation and having their um, <clears throat> their doctor communicate with them via this uh, telehealth uh, robot that, that you guys actually uh, did some work on, that it's it's the scenario itself is a little you know scary a little shocking i think for both for the user and and for the reader which i like because it really puts you in the in the user's shoes and it strikes me that uh and you mentioned this scott um emotion and and how we were you know these these sort of primal uh senses that we have those are going to be um important to design for as we think about um, you know, HRI, you know, human robot uh, interactions. Um, and, and, and I think it, it's, it's worth considering that, that the emotional aspects are, are just as important uh, as the technology aspects. Would you, would you agree with that statement? Definitely. The, the drivers, of course, are uh, practical. The, um, the idea of a telepresence robot in a, an emergency room setting, let's say, is uh, it's it's totally uh, practically driven. The idea that uh, you uh, may not have access to the best doctor where you might be, you know, located in some remote location, uh, uh, becomes uh, uh, a non-issue if you can access that the great specialist anywhere in the world. So the the motivation is, uh, of course, 
uh, practical and, uh, and, a, and a huge user benefit. But getting this technology adopted is, uh, is difficult because that's not the scenario that anyone's expecting to experience. So uh, the way that... Um, in the case of this uh, telepresence robot, it uh, the posture it took, the way it moved, uh, the the way that the user would get introduced to the doctor that this robot was going to become, the way that the uh, care team in the room would know the attitude of the robot before the person uh, uh, took its form, uh, were all things that we were trying to design, knowing knowing when you can have a casual conversation with uh, the doctor and knowing when the doctor through the robotic embodiment is rushing to uh, the ER are important things to indicate uh, which humans do in many um, uh, subtle and uh, unconscious ways that we now have to be very conscious about the way we would incorporate those into a, into a machine interface. Right. That's, that's a good uh, lead in to our second question, which I'm going to uh, direct to Bill, uh, which is, you know, in your, in your chapter, you discuss a set of design rules of thumb for uh, human-robot interaction, which, which are based on Jacob uh, Nielsen's usability heuristics. Uh, what would you say are the most important of these, and how do you see them manifest uh, in the work that, that you guys do every day? Yeah, that's a great question, John. You know, um, when Nielsen came up with that framework, I don't think it was necessarily directed toward artificial intelligence down the road a few decades or even human-robot interactions. But those frameworks have proven themselves to be quite valuable to user experience designers, I think, over and over again, as well as usability testing uh, experts in terms of things to look for. And... Uh, we can use those same principles and look for applications on uh, robots serving our higher-ordered needs uh, moving forward as we move from serving mere uh, needs related to convenience or performance and actually supporting our decision-making and uh, emerging technologies moving from uh, at early stages of uh, a new design being able to do anything or be magic in terms of the user interface to being more human in the user interface that point about uh, making an emotional appeal as well as a logical uh, appeal and a credible appeal to we as humans in developing our degrees of trust is really critical. Um, where my kids go to school, they have a, a motto of freedom and responsibility. And as robots take on these higher ordered functions, they need to prove to their users that they are uh, responsible enough to be given uh, higher degrees of freedom in how they operate and how they support our decision-making. I was listening to Barry Schwartz being interviewed recently, the author of The Paradox of Choice on Fresh Air, and he described um, uh, mutual funds have been around a few decades. They automate the process of asset allocation and uh, diverse investments for 401k plan participants. But when the numbers of mutual funds become too great, participation in 401k plans actually drops off. And so as robots uh, take on higher degrees of autonomy and freedom and guide our decision-making, there are there are certain assumptions that they will need to make 
uh, along the way in doing that so that we aren't overwhelmed with the number of choices available to us and can make meaningful choices within uh, realistic constraints. So this notion of choice architecture and as designers choreographing this choice architecture in uh, some of the um, uh, uh, algorithms that might go into the robotics is, is really really key. So referring back to the Nielsen heuristics, I think that visibility of system status is a biggie. Mm -hmm. The uh, telepresence robot with InTouch Health conveys its status in terms of its anthropomorphic language as it moves through the hospital. Am I in a hurry to get to another department or do I have time to linger and take up a new conversation or convey information to uh, a passerby? Uh, without having to ask the robot specifically uh, how much time do you have uh, available. It's purely in the body language and the visible visibility of the system status of the robot. I think also just the flexibility and efficiency of use is key. Is somebody a novice with a particular uh, robot and using it for the first time and is more transparency uh, or self-evidency in the uh, in the decision-making required or it, can it operate in a more expert fashion? Uh, so that uh, robots knowing their audiences can help them add that much more value and indeed help the technology support our needs as humans and not get in the way of our needs as humans. Yeah, both of those, I think, are, uh, are uh, critical heuristics. It's, it's interesting to uh, consider the, what basically amounts to the elements of, of body language being... Um, uh, described as system transparency, but you know, if you're, if you and I are walking in the hallway, you'll you'll be, you you can convey to me via your body language, you know, your system status. Oh, I'm Bill's busy. He's he's doing <laughs> he's something. Yeah, right but to 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 put it in that way, because when we're talking about you know human robot interaction, we're we're talking about systems, right? We're not talking. You know, I, I would never say you know. Bill's system status is busy, but that's essentially what we're saying about the robots. So that's a that's a fascinating connection between sort of uh, cultural mores and body language and all these, you know, sort of uh, call it soft language and and communication skills that we sort of pick up um, as human beings that we're now hard coding into, um, you know, human robot. Uh, communication methods. Mm -hmm. So I, I I really enjoyed that that part of your chapter. So so our our final question for uh, for the show is uh, you offered some some thoughts in your chapter about people becoming robotic. Um, you know we were familiar with the Bionic Man and uh, science fiction cyborgs uh, where people are part human part robot. Um, you know, whether it's uh, helping to aid recovery in a healthcare scenario or, um, you know, I've seen it uh, used to enhance human abilities uh, in industrial working environments with, you know, um, exoskeletons. Um, so what are some of the critical areas that uh, designers need to consider when creating these products and tool sets um, that are changing in some ways uh, the way we understand really being human. Uh, Scott, 
you know, what's your what's your take on that? Well, it's uh, it's interesting because the, there are people that we interact with today that are becoming robotic. Anybody that wears a cochlear implant uh, to uh, recover, either recover hearing or to actually hear for the first time because the their biological systems uh, weren't uh, uh, there to uh, offer that uh, that sensory input to begin with, is robotic. Uh, there are uh, companies that are offering uh, retinal implants that are providing uh, normal and even superhuman sensory inputs through your eyes that your brain can now interpret in ways there are people that are working on uh, uh, other kinds of sensors where you can uh, react, you can understand your environment on levels that are beyond what a human can uh, currently uh, uh, understand from their their normal uh, sensory array. So um, there are people that we interact with that are already becoming robotic and there are more people that we will be interacting with in the future that have uh, some of these um, capabilities uh, added uh, to themselves. but. Uh, there's other applications, you know, uh, you know, typically uh, initiated through, uh, you know, DARPA and, and, mm-hmm. and military uh, settings, but to enhancing uh, human capabilities as a uh, uh, to uh, save people from uh, compromised situations, to move heavy things over long distances that you can't do uh, uh, by using. Um, uh, other kinds of uh, smart prostheses and uh, ectoskeletons are, are uh, experiments and, and developments that are happening uh, right now. Uh, so I think um, it's, it's, it's fascinating uh, how much is happening, but how most of us don't appreciate it because we're not interacting with these people in these little uh, communities and these specialty areas. But we'll be seeing more of that moving into our, into our lives and into our world. And, and it's going to get interesting as it relates to uh, uh, you having a casual conversation with somebody that can, that can see infrared in the room that you can't see and how they might use that information uh, one way or another. <laughs> yeah, I guess blushing will have all sorts of new meanings for that, um, <laughs> that person. Um, Shut the thoughts. So, um, Bill, what's... Uh, what are your thoughts on, on becoming uh, superhuman, becoming robotic? Yeah, you know, um, there's already been a little bit of an arms race in the professional athletics arena, performance-enhancing drugs, yep. com- uh, and our ability to, or the users of those products, uh, their ability to conceal the use of those those products. Uh, even the Blade Runner in the last um, Summer Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, it's not uh, something that was easily concealed, but it has raised some real questions about, is this fair competition or uh, isn't it fair? And this uh, topic we were discussing previously about visibility of system status and our trust in robotics when uh, robots are autonomous, I think there's, um, our worlds are colliding as we as people might take on uh, higher degrees of of mechanized componentry, <laughs> regrowing uh, parts on an organic level or augmenting our own performance through technologies that will presumably be easier to conceal uh, uh, in the future. So I think it's difficult to predict uh, where that is headed, but I think 
um, uh, ethically and just in terms of our uh, interpersonal relations and our inter-robot relations, that understanding for where there is fair versus unfair uh, performance characteristics is, is going to be a part of that conversation uh, moving forward. Yeah, there, there are going to be a lot of interesting conversations, I'm sure, as we uh, start seeing more and more uh, cyborg Americans and, you know, um, see it in the Olympics or, or again. Uh, so thank you guys so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, John. Congratulations on your book. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. That's it for episode 119 of The Digital Life. I'm John Follett, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.